0: Luke chapter 15, verse 1, we'll read the whole chapter. Now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near him to listen to him. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable, saying, What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it. When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep, which was lost. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman... If she has ten silver coins and loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it. When she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I had lost. In the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And he said a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. Now, when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country and he began to be impoverished. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, and he had sent him into the fields to feed swine. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving anything to him. But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread? But I am dying here with hunger. I will get up and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and in your sight, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me one of your hired men. So he got up and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him, and ran and embraced and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and in your sight, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly, Bring out the best robe and put it on him, and put, on, put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet, and bring the fatted calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate, for this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. And he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things could be. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he became angry and was not willing to go in. And his father came out and began pleading with him. But he answered and said to his father, look, for so many years I've been serving you and I've never neglected a command of yours. And yet you have never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who had devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you have always been with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice, for this brother of yours was dead and has been begun to live and was lost and has been found. And Father, we do thank you for this story. We pray that you would help us as we work through this very common story. Lord, help it not to become... Uh, ordinary in our minds, Lord. We ask that this story would come alive, that we would see it in 3D. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So kind of backing up, it's been it's been a, a few, like a month or so since we've been in this story. Um, up here is the map of Israel. The very north there's a lake in the Sea of Galilee. Um, it's the very top portion of this map. The Sea of Galilee is in the the area or the region of Galilee. You can see it's kind of a different shade color. Most of Jesus' life he spent in this little area, traveling, growing, learning um, within that small little area. When his public ministry started at his baptism, he continued to stay in this area and to teach, um, to do the things that we know of in the Gospels. The exceptions were that three times a year for his whole life, he would journey south um, from the Sea of Galilee going south, there's a river called the, the Jordan River. It flows into the Dead Sea. At the northern end of the Dead Sea, there's Jerusalem. He would come to Jerusalem three times a year to do all of the festivals. A few chapters ago in Luke, Jesus begins to make his turn where he's, he's heading towards Jerusalem for the last, um, the last time many, many chapters. I think it was in chapter 9 that he began his journey down to um, Jerusalem. The rest of Luke is following this journey where he would come to Jerusalem. He would ultimately be arrested. He would be crucified. He would die. He would be buried. He would rise again on the third day, and then he would ascend. So he's moving towards Jerusalem, and as he's going to Jerusalem, he encounters basically Two different groups of people. There's the scribes and the Pharisees, the leaders of Judaism, the one who set all the rules, the religious people. Then you have the tax collectors and sinners. Those were people who were frowned upon by the religious establishment. Jesus was very harsh to the religious establishment. As we've worked our way through Luke, we've seen some very tough um, confrontation that Jesus gives to them, while at the same time to the sinners and tax collectors, he's teaching them, he's welcoming them in. The tax collectors were hated by the Pharisees. The tax collectors were essentially Jewish people who had, as the way the the religious Jewish people or all the Jews kind of felt that they had betrayed Israel, came under Roman authority, and then Roman authority gave them the permission to basically strong arm people out of their money. We don't need a lot of explanation to understand how you feel about the tax man. But it was worse back then. I mean, it was really bad. It was anything that they could extort, they gave, they gave to Rome, and they could skim off the top any excess that they could gather. And so in our story, it, the chapters, we have to remember, were not put there by God. The chapters and verses were put there in the 1500s by a French man, and very helpful for us to navigate the, the, the Bible that we can say, hey, go to Luke chapter 15. The divisions aren't always necessarily Um, like a division of thought. And especially in this story, if we go to the beginning of Luke chapter 14, we've had a month off. And in the first verse, we see that it happened when he went into the house of one of the leaders of the Pharisees on the Sabbath to eat bread, and they were watching him closely. And there in front of him was a man suffering from dropsy, So here's this big setup that they had set Jesus up. They invited him over for lunch on a Saturday. He's not supposed to do any healings. Jesus would ultimately heal this guy. It would terribly offend the Pharisees and scribes. And Jesus begins addressing them to this very strong sermon, calling them to follow him. In verse 11, we see, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So we see this kind of this paradigm shift From human standards to God's standards, at the bottom will be, the last will be first, the first will be last. Moving down to verse 27, Jesus says to this group, whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Jesus hadn't been executed at this point. The cross to us, it's it's almost a jewelry, a good luck charm. But during this time, when they would carry their cross to execution... Carrying the cross was symbolic. I don't know that the prisoners or those that were executed would agree. But Rome said, by carrying the cross, what you were doing, in essence, was submitting to Rome and saying, I was wrong. Rome is right. I'm carrying my cross to execution. So there's this idea of submission. And Jesus is saying, carry your cross, submit to the things that I'm saying. If you don't, you can't be my disciples. Now, these are strong words. Many would have turned away. Down in verse 33. He ups the ante. He says, so none of you can be my disciples who does not give up all his own possessions. Therefore, salt is good. But even if salt has become tasteless, with what will it be seasoned? It is useless either for soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And there's this big, this this call of Jesus. If you hear what I'm saying, come here, be taught. Chapter 15, verse 1, the story continues. Now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near to listen to him. As he's basically ratcheting up the commitment that he wants from his followers, the religious are kind of turning away or backing up saying, I don't want to be a part of this. But the sinners or the, t- the tax collectors who they hated, sinners may or may not be a good understanding for us. The sinners were the Jewish people who were not practicing Judaism. Sure, they were in sin, but they were viewed because they weren't doing all of the religious acts. They were viewed as sinners. And all of these people began sitting. We want to hear more. We want to be your disciples. Yes, Lord, we hear. We have ears. We're ready to listen. And as this is happening in verse 2, we read, but the Pharisees, both the Pharisees and the scribes, began to grumble, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. See, I love this. I hear in Christian circles all the time. I, I can be critical of Christians. Oh, Jesus hang out with tax collectors and sinners. So that means I'm going to go be in the bar on Friday night and Saturday night. And I'm going to go out and reach them. But I love hearing the picture when I, you know, so much. I had all this stuff kind of growing up, not really a part of the church. And really what I see is they were coming to Jesus. And Jesus really hung out with both the religious and the non-religious. And when the non-religious, those were that out, outside of the system, the religious began to criticize them. How could you hang out with I don't know in our culture, this might be in Christian circles. All of a sudden, a bunch of Democrats come in. I've heard Christians say, how can you be a Christian and be a Democrat? It's kind of crazy. I don't think that God endorses one or the other. But there's this idea, like this divide that we've kind of created our system and those outside of this system, they can't love God. And this is what they're doing. He's sitting with them and eating with them. They're sinners. Of course he would. Back in Luke chapter 5, it's up there, 27 through 32. We're not going to read the story. But Matthew, the tax collector, had come to Christ. He'd accepted Christ as Savior. He changed his way, and he says, I'm going to throw a big party. He'd been so good at basically taking money through taxes that he had a huge house. He had all kinds of resources. He could invite all of his tax collector friends, Jesus and the disciples, and he throws a huge bash for them. And the Pharisees and scribes, are, they're grumbling again in that story. And Jesus looks at them and says, listen, the healthy don't need a physician. The sick need a physician. I came to heal the sick. Later in um, Luke chapter 7, some of you have been teasing me since June. I'm okay with it. It was a snot sermon for those of you that were here. The fa- I, it was, I guess I got too much into that story. But Jesus was invited over for lunch. They're sitting at the table and there was a woman that would not have been allowed in. She basically busted through to go to the dinner. And when she got to Jesus' back, as he'd be laying out with his feet on one end and his head on the other, his elbow up. She gets behind him and she's so overwhelmed with his love and who he was that she basically just started. The fountain unleashed. And tears and emotions and she was going to crack a little bit of lotion but i kind of think tears and snot and all kind of stuff started dripping on him then she panics and she goes down and she lets out her hair which in that culture that you only you got married and you only let down your hair in the privacy with your husband in your own house and so she does this very provocative thing and lets out her hair and starts she's just panicked and they're all aghast like yeah, <gasps> And Jesus says, listen, this woman has given more than any of you could give in her love for me. And so here Jesus is basically defending this group of sinners and tax collectors that's before him. They're moaning. They don't get it. And in this story, there's three. It's the lost parables. We have the lost sheep, the lost coin, and then the lost son. And in these stories, really the first two are building up to help us understand the last one. In the last one, you have the father and the two sons. The father being kind of God, and then the the good son being the Pharisees and scribes, and then the bad son being the sinners and tax collectors. Jesus is teaching in a way that brings what he's trying to convey home. I love it. This story is so simple. There's nothing complicated about this story. And so as Jesus looks at these Pharisees and scribes being critical of the sinners and tax collectors that are before him, eager to learn the things that Jesus said were difficult and yet they wanted more. They really were the example in this story. And so Jesus tells them a parable saying, What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which it has lost until he finds it? This would have made all the sense in the world to them. We're Valley Center, so there might be a handful of people that actually own sheep. I don't know. I'm not going to ask for a display of hands. But when I'm reading over this story, story, I'm like, how does this relate? What have I lost? What have I lost? What have I lost? Well, it was Halloween of this year. Halloween day, I open up my wallet and I look at my sheep, my credit cards and ATM cards. One of them was gone. Do you know the panic that ensues when something is missing from your wallet? My ATM card was gone. And so I'm like, oh, no. Do I have to start calling the bank? Do I have to start shutting everything down? I am being robbed as we speak. Somebody's like, you know, the last time it happened, I was actually robbed. And somebody went to town on Carl's Jr. compliments of me. I don't know what they did, but they spent a lot of money at Carl's Jr. And I'm like panicking, panicking, panicking. And I'm like, okay, wait, wait, let's, let's reflect. Like, wait, I never use the ATM card. Like I just don't carry around cash. And I'm like, wait a minute. I, when I get my haircut, I have to use cash. I'm like, I got my haircut on Saturday. I went to the bank and I used my ATM card. But I'm thinking, not this kid. I don't forget stuff. There's no way I could have left my card in the ATM machine. But at this point, I'm like, I hope I left it in the ATM machine because then there's an answer and I don't have to cancel the card to get a new one. So I call the bank down here on the corner. Excuse me. There's no way this could have happened to me. I'm a very responsible person. <laughs> but is there any way my ATM card could have been left there? And like, hold on a second. We got like a pile of a thousand of these things. What's your name? I'm like, can I do this anonymously? Can I give you like the, the last four digits of the card or something? they had it and so then i had to do the walk of shame down to the bank and i walked up to the teller who was dressed up as raggedy ann which made it even worse it's like a horrible dream there i am to raggedy ann trying to explain to her that this is not like me and i don't know what came over me I don't, I'm really, really sorry. She's like, it's no big deal. It happens all the time. She's like, you just got to fill out this paper, sign it. She, I signed it. She gave me my card, and I'm walking out there, <laughs> kissing the card, woohoo! And all the other credit cards were just there, and I just like, here you guys go, you're all together. I remember I called the few select friends that I could share this with that wouldn't totally harass me. I think Dave was one of them, my wife, and then other than that, I kept my shame to myself. But I was so happy that my ATM card that was lost was now found. And in verse 5, Jesus says, when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And, his, and he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, rejoice with me. For I found my ATM, I mean sheep, which was lost. <laughs> like, I found it. And then Jesus as they're all going, amen, brother. Like, we everybody there knew about losing a sheep. In this room, we don't so much, but we all identify with a losing the ATM card. And we all know that joy of finding something that was lost. And right when they got it in their hearts, it clicked. They knew what he was talking about. He turns it on them. And he says in verse 7, I tell you that in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. So I could just see the Pharisees because those righteous ones, that was them. Remember Paul, the apostle, like his big revelation is that he was a sinner. He thought, according to law, he was perfect, blameless. And so this group of Pharisees and scribes, they thought before God they were innocent. And Jesus just says, listen, these people understanding who they are before God to repent. There's more joy in heaven over this. And then he continues, verse eight, or what woman, if she has Ten silver coins and loses one coin does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it. Now when I look at this, I don't think there's any mistake that Jesus says, or what woman. I don't want to start casting the genders, but in our house there's a saying. If something is lost and I look for it and I can't find it, I go to Anna. I say, Anna, I don't I looked everywhere. It's gone. It must have evaporated or whatever it is. And she'll look at me. She's like, did your mom look for it or did your dad look for it? I'm like, I don't know. I just tore the house apart and I couldn't find it. And she'll go, okay, I'll look for it. Within 15 seconds, it's right here. I'm like, there's no way it was right there. I looked everywhere. She found it. Just the day after the big, we had the big movie night at the church, Don Fredericks called me. Or he texted me or he emailed me or something. He got a hold of me. he said, we're having a big crisis in our house. You know, they have two two-year-old little boys. Apparently, they only have two sippy cups. One of the sippy cups was missing. And he's like, I need to get to the church to find the sippy cup. I'm like, hey, I'll look for the sippy cup. Is it like an emergency? I got a funeral. Like, I go into a funeral right now. Can it, he's like, well, we're not at crisis level just yet. But we're getting close. And so I'd, I came home from the funeral, and then I, or I came back to the church, and I'm scouring this place. I'm, trying to, I'm like, I'll find a sippy cup, I'll take it down. I like was crawling under these chairs, crawling under the couch, every single room, in the lost and found, everywhere. And I called Don. I say, hey, Don, I got bad news. The sippy cup's nowhere to be found. It's not here. He's like, well, how about I bring the two little girls that were watching the boys and see if they can find it. I'm like, Don, I looked everywhere, but if it'll make you feel better, you can come. So Abigail and Naomi walk in, and within five seconds, Abigail comes out. It's right here. Wait, wait, wait. Did you stash that on you trying to get out of trouble? Where? She's like, she walks back to the nursery. It's like right on the table. And I'm, how did I miss that? She's like, I don't, I don't know. But she found it. And so here in this story, there's this woman has 10 coins one of them is dropped and don't think of our floors which are flat and even think cobblestone think little rocks think of a dark room because there wasn't electricity she drops it so she lights a lamp she gets out a broom and she starts sweeping eventually you sweep and you hear the clink 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 of the set of the coin when she finds it she totally rejoices i mean there's no greater fi- feeling then pulling on a clean pair of shorts or Levi's and you reach in and you fill the dollar in there. Ha 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 20 bucks. I never have 20 bucks. How do I get 20 bucks? In? And when you fill that paper, you fill it and you go, oh, please, what is it? Please be a 20, please. It's like a one. <laughs> but you rejoice because it's like free money. She's stoked. She calls all of her friends together. Verse nine saying, rejoice with me, for I found the coin which I had lost. Now, we all understand this parable. And then Jesus, once everybody's going, oh, yeah, I've lost money, then we find it and it's like a big deal. Then he says, in the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. One of the things it's like I know Rick Rick when he does whenever he talks about like going to men's retreats or wherever there's like a sort of an altar call he talks about getting all emotional, and I know that when I had my time of serving with Miles McPherson and doing like the big crusades where people came there's nothing like like when I see people kind of coming forward and making a decision that they're gonna follow after Jesus. Man, I turn into like a babbling baby just of tears coming down because it's just so awesome to see this. And Jesus is saying, when a sinner turns his heart towards God, there's a huge party of angels in heaven over one, over one. And I don't know what the Pharisees and scribes are doing at this point as there's all the sinners and tax collectors at his feet. There are the people scowling in the background. I'm guessing that they're getting more upset. Because the picture's very clear here. And so then Jesus goes to tell on the longest of these three little parables of the pro- prodigal son. And in verse 11, he continues. He said, a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them. I, Luke just kind of just psh, spits this out. Okay, there's a guy with two kids. The one kid wanted half of his... his half of his inheritance and so the father just divided the inheritance we read this parable it's so common we don't think about it but think about this one sentence all that happened there this kid the younger of the two sons goes to the dad and what he says in essence is i wish you were dead so i could have my money now you're holding up my life. I don't like you. I want no relationship with you. But I want the material blessing that you have to offer. And then the dad, like I don't have sons, but I can guess how I would react. If I had two sons that were like teenage age and the one says, hey, dad, I pretty much hate you and wish you were dead so I could get all the stuff so I could go party, I'm pretty confident that I would say... um, The front door's right there. Yeah. Don't go away mad. Just go away. Go learn what it means to grow up. That's right. All the the dads with sons are, Amen, brother. (laughs) (laughs) Justin's going, Yeah, I know. Here's his dad. (laughs) But what does the dad do? Like, this kid just does it. This guy divides his estate. And he gives half to one son and half to the other son. This is like, I mean, this is gracious, I think. I mean, like, it's more than gracious. L- like, there's mercy, there's grace. Jesus is setting up the Pharisees to hear this perfect un- like, picture of what God's grace and favor actually means to us on practical terms. And, and people do this to God all the time. I don't want to follow your rules. I don't want anything to do with you. I like having fun, but I want all of the material blessing that you can offer. My health, my, my wealth, whatever it is. I want that, but I want nothing to do with you. And so this dad does it. He divides the estate between the two of them. In verse 13, we read, And not many days later the young son gathered everything together he wasn't going on a little vacation he took everything he packed up shop and he was leaving never to come back and he went on a journey to a distant country and there he squandered his estate with loose living so he took his wealth and he left when i read this story i remember as my very first seal platoon there was a guy who i will leave his name out of it his dad was extremely wealthy I forget exactly what his dad did. I think he was a scientist of some level that had broken some big thing and, and was a multi millionaire. And his dad died while we were in the first platoon. And this guy, he was an E5 in our platoon, and he, he came into like, it was somewhere between a million and two million dollars. And it was awesome. Like, there I was, 21 year old gunner, with this guy who just became like a, a millionaire. He was so much fun to hang out with. I mean, he bought he bought like a fleet of mustangs, like this whatever like the mustang cobra, and then we would travel compliments of the government, but we would go to these places, and he was just like money was going everywhere, and so we it was so much fun. we were just, I was not a believer, and we were in his wake, and just somewhere along the line, he goes, "Oh, I should probably talk to somebody." about managing this money. And I'm like, well, my dad's a financial advisor. He'd probably talk to, he probably talked, you know, he loves SEALs and he'd be happy to talk with you. So I set up an appointment with him and my dad. He met he met my dad. I saw my dad like a week later. I'm like, hey, how'd that meeting go? He's like, he's going to have a, all his money going to be gone with a, within a year, mark my words. And I'm like, okay, well, it's going to be a fun year in this platoon, you know? <laughs> and I like that's, that platoon ended and a couple years went by and I saw him and I was like, hey, what's so serious about you? He's like, why aren't you lifting it up still? He's like, it's all gone. It's all gone. It's even more than gone. Because when you inherited a million dollars, your line of credit gets like exponentially greater. And he basically bought all of this stuff on credit. And now he had to like file bankruptcy. And all of us who are just like on Navy pay, we seem like the millionaires after he went through all of this stuff. This is exactly what this son did. He goes to this distant land. He's partying up. He's a life of the party. Everybody loves him. And then all of a sudden, he squandered everything with loose living. Now we come to verse 14, life after the money is gone. Now when he'd spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country. So not only did he spend everything he had, suddenly now they're in in a recession. No food. And he began to be impoverished. He was starving. So he went and he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country. And he sent him into the fields to feed swine. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods of the swine were eating. And no one was giving anything to him. So it's kind of funny. Even though he wasn't really a religious practicing Jew. Here he finds himself in a country where now he's taking care of pigs. This would have been the most demeaning thing he could have done. And he's carrying his slop out to the pigs to throw the slop to the pigs for them to eat. And he's so hungry, he's looking at the slop that the pigs are eating. And he says, I would so love to get in there and eat that slop with them. We think we have standards for what we will eat and what we won't eat. But when you get hungry, you'll eat anything. When I was, my junior year, I got sent away to bad kids', kids camp. It was a pretty awesome summer. But they starved us. It was like three different phases of like hiking through Utah. Towards the end, they gave us some more freedom. We were still, hike, we were still starving, but they, I, I, in hindsight, what they were doing is they were trying to add a little more rice into our diet because we were going to graduate. And we got to one of these places where there was a huge campground. It was a lake. I remember that it had just rained. And all of the campers had cleared out. So it was like the day after a big party in a campground. They told us, okay, you can go collect some firewood. We snuck out to go get our firewood. But we're like, hey, we're going to go hit up some of these other camps that have cleared out. Let's see if we can find any scraps. My lowest point of life, we came to this fire pit. It had just rained. But in the ashes, there was a three-quarter remnant of a hot dog bun. And I kind of remember looking at it going, it looks pretty good. And the two of us that were there, we kind of are looking at each other. We're going in. <laughs> we pulled out that soggy, kind of mildewy, three-quarter hot dog bun, divided it up evenly, and scarfed it. It was the best-tasting hot dog bun I've ever eaten. I think of that every time we're, we, I eat hot dogs. So you'll know what I'll be thinking. This is where he is. He's starving. This slop that the pigs, the pig was a vile animal, let alone to eat the food that they were eating. He would love to have this. Verse 17, but when he came to his senses, it's literally himself. Like he's sitting there in the midst of his lowest low and he realizes how good his dad is. And he said, how many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I am dying here with hunger. I will get up and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. This is his big battle plan. There he is at his very lowest point in life. He's going to go back. He's going to humble himself before his father. He's going to tell him that he sinned against God. He sinned against him. He doesn't even want to be a son again. All he wants to do is to be brought on as a slave because that's better than his conditions there. And so he, in verse 20, makes a journey back. So he got up and came to his father. But while he was a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran out and embraced him and kissed him. So here the son comes from a distance. The father can see there's this, this homeless-looking guy. I don't know if he had shoes on, but the story says that they kind of gave him like a robe and shoes and a ring and got him dressed up. And he's a mess. The father realizes who it is, maybe by the gait of his walk or his looks, something. And we're told that his father had compassion. And in his compassion, when he sees his son, he doesn't wait for his son to get there. He runs to his son. He embraced him and he kisses him. He's, boy, and as he's picking up his son, I imagine the son to be looking down at the ground in shame. Like, had he sinned against him. Who is he? How can he be treating me like this? And remember the bigger picture. Jesus is saying this, the sinners and the tax collectors who the Pharisees and scribes said there was no hope for them with God. And he's painting this picture of this father that's, Pulling them up into their arms and hugging and kissing and loving on them. And in verse 21, the son said to him, father, I've sinned. And I imagine as he's speaking, he's looking down to the ground. He can't even look his dad in the eyes. Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fatted calf, kill it and let us eat and celebrate for the son of mine was dead and has come to life again. And he was lost and had been found. And they began to celebrate It's this beautiful picture. Go get the robe that says he's like, like of my household and has the same authority with the ring, put sandals on his feet. Let's get the calf and have a barbecue. Nothing says party like a barbecue. We're going to have some tri-tip tonight. It's going to be awesome. Let's celebrate. And when I read these words of the father telling us that he was lost and he'd been found. What comes to mind? The greatest hymn that's probably ever been written. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Written by a man that was a slave trader. That many died under his watch. And going across the sea as he encounters a huge storm and realizes who he is in light of God, he pins the words to amazing grace. And it's been said, I know nothing about music, but I guess it's a black note key, or black note song, which means that the, see, this is, I'm way out of my league here talking about music. But apparently when you play the piano, there's the white keys and the black keys. I know that much. But there are songs that are written on the black keys. And the only people who write songs on this were the black hymns, the black spiritual songs. And so it's been speculated, or if you go to any archive and you look up Amazing Grace, it'll say the words are by, what's his name? What? John Newton, right? Yeah, John Newton, that's right. And it says the music, it's unknown. And so some have speculated that he got the rhythm from the slaves that were in the bow of the the ship as they were singing their hum. And there he is in this storm and he's given the words of amazing grace. It's powerful when you know his story. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. He knew he was a vile sinner in the eyes of God and experienced this grace. A father that would divide his inheritance to somebody that totally doesn't deserve it. That the father, when his son comes back, he just throws a huge party. It's beautiful. And God does that for us when we come back to him. But in the midst of this beautiful story, Jesus is an amazing teacher. I see all the sinners and tax collectors going, amen, amen. Amen. I was lost, but I'm found. And you have the scribes over there putting their chins up to Jesus, shaking their head. I can't believe he's talking like this. I mean, remember, they're going to kill him for this. Bless you. Now, verse 25, Jesus is going to tell the story of the other son, which never stood out to me because I think I identify with the prodigal son. I wasn't raised in the church. I wasn't raised doing all the right stuff. So I've always identified with the prodigal coming back. And if you're a prodigal coming back, if you've done stuff in your life, what I take from the first son is that God loves you so much, you don't, like, you don't have to feel guilt and shame over what you've done because Jesus paid it all on the cross, totally and completely. And God wants to just bring you up into his arms and to give you hugs and kisses like the father in this story. But now his older son was in the field. And when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. So there he has been working all day. He can hear, you know, the bass thumping or whatever. (laughs) You can hear it from miles away. What's going on? I didn't know there was a birthday party or celebration. Did I miss something? So then he calls one of the slaves and says, hey, what's going on? Verse 26, and he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things could be. And he said to him, your brother's come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he received. He has received him back safe and sound. Your brother's alive. He's okay. He's in one piece. We thought he was dead. So there's a huge party welcoming him back. And look how this kid responds. But he became angry. And was not willing to go and stubborn. I see him cross his arm, I'm not going back there. I've been slaving away. I've been obeying my father. I've been doing everything that he wants. And in this moment, we see that one son was separated by distance. But there was another son separated. Even He was sharing a house with his father. But he had no relationship with his dad. He had no understanding of his character and the heart of this man. And he's having a temper tantrum hearing about the brother. And as this is going in, this dad who's celebrating with the one son that he came back, he understands because he can see his son in the distance. And he still pays attention to that other son. And he goes and he gets that other son and starts reasoning with the other son in the midst of the party. He came out and he began pleading with him. Like, son, don't you understand? This is a joyous day. Your brother is back. This isn't something for you to be upset and angry over. Come rejoice. But he answered and said to his father, look, for so many years I've been serving you and I've never neglected a command of yours. And yet you have never given me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. He gave him half of his inheritance already. He received half too. If you go back, he divided it between the two. But he's still complaining, he's serving, he's doing the motions of his father, but his heart isn't with his dad. The Pharisees and scribes were doing all of the religious stuff, but they had no clue who God was at his innermost being. It reminds me of John chapter 3, when Nicodemus, one of the high-ranking scribe or Pharisee, came to Jesus in the middle of the night to start asking him questions. And Jesus starts talking about a man must be born again, and Nicodemus is like, I don't get it. And Jesus looks at him he's like, you're one of the head of the religious people and you don't understand the very essence of what God wants from you. That God cares about men and being in relationship. They didn't get it. They're having their temper tantrum. Verse 31, and the father, he said to him, son, you have always been with me and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and to rejoice for this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live, and was lost, and has been found. It's a simple story. This, this whole chapter is simple. There are three characters. And what we see of the Father, what we see of God, is that his Im- immense love for all people. In Romans chapter 2, we're not going to go there, but in Romans chapter 2, verse 4, Romans is this legal document that Paul's writing this case, this theological case for who God is. The very first three chapters, he's showing that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And we read that in Romans 3.23. The first chapter is condemning all like the pagans, heathens, the non-Jewish people. Chapter two is about condemning the Jewish people that even them, though God has trusted them with the law and the ordinances, that they are condemned before God. But in the very first part of that in two four. Paul writes, don't think lightly that it's the kindness of God that leads you to repentance. And if you mull on that, if you look at this story, see, God is almighty, all powerful. He spoke creation into existence. We can't fathom with our brains how great God is. And I think of that Psalm of David, that when he considers the moon and the stars and the heavens and all that's in them, who am I that you would consider me? Paul says in Romans, don't forget it's the kindness of God that leads you to repentance. When you go to Peter and they're talking about, oh, when's all this judgment going to happen? When's the end of the world going to happen? And Peter writes, listen, it's the kindness of God. Like he so desires that all men are saved. And because of this desire for all people to repent and to turn to him, that's what, what is withholding his wrath. And when I look at this father and the prodigal son, he is far more gracious than I could ever, like I would ever be. Or any father that I know. We would look at this father and think you're crazy to divide your assets and give it to this spoiled little kid. And God's showing us how great his grace is to us. When we look at the prodigal son, as I look at this story as a guy who totally ran from God and did all kind of stupid stuff. Like when it comes to stories of folly, I have an endless supply of my folly stories. Slowly, I'm getting more wisdom stories, but they're just not as funny. <laughs> but coming to Christ and, and realizing that I needed him, I had a terrible time accepting God's forgiveness. Like I knew intellectually that God had forgiven me, but I couldn't forgive myself, and I would beat myself up over and over and over again. And I think that this is a ploy of saying that he wants to sideline us. And when we read of God's grace, he says, no, I've forgiven you. When Jesus was on the cross and he was paying for the sins of the world, he knew everything that you'd done, everything that you would have done. And when I look at you as my child, all I see is the perfect life of Christ. And then there's the other son. See, now I have to guard myself from being the other son as a pastor of a church. And, you know, as we as a church grow, we have to guard ourselves from being religiously arrogant and looking down on those who are not of us and i love that about this church that i don't care who you are like you can walk in you can look like whatever and this church is going to lovingly receive you but when i look at the other son it reminds me of a parable that's found in matthew chapter 20 the first 16 verses and it's the parable where jesus tells about the the, the owner of this field who he needed a bunch of work to be done so he went down to the corner, and he hired a bunch of workers and said, hey, can you work for eight hours today? At the end of the day, I'll pay you $40. As the day went on at lunch, he hired a bunch more workers and said, hey, if you'll work from lunch to sunset, I'll pay you $40. And then when there's like an hour to go, don't quote me on the times or the prices. This is my version. There's like an hour of work left to work. He goes out and hires out a bunch more people and said, if you'll work with me for an hour, I'll pay you 40 bucks." The end of the day comes he starts paying those that came last forty bucks, then he paid the next group forty bucks. By the time the first group is coming, they got in their minds, Well, he told me forty dollars, but this group they've only been working for an hour. He paid them forty bucks. Certainly I'm gonna get like hundred bucks. And then when he paid him the forty dollars, they throw a big temper tantrum. He says, Wait, what's up with this? That's not fair. And the owner said, Well, when I hired you, didn't I say that if you worked all day that I pay you forty dollars? Is it any of your business that I paid these guys $40 for an hour's worth of work? And the issue is fairness. We as as humans, when I look at the scribes and Pharisees, here they are. They've lived according to the law. They've done everything they were supposed to do. And here these sinners and tax collectors are being welcomed into the kingdom. That's not fair that they had to do all of this stuff and they didn't. And the bottom line is we don't want fair with God. God fair with god is that we pay the penalty for our own sin his grace has abounded in our lives through christ and two weeks ago following the funerals when i did talked about second corinthians chapter five see the very end of second corinthians chapter five it said that we have received this gift of reconciliation that through christ we've been forgiven of our sins and as soon as we receive that forgiveness then god says okay Now, I've entrusted you. You're now my, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Ambassador. I got to figure that out if I'm one, you know. You're my ambassador. I've entrusted you with the ministry of reconciliation. Go out and share this reconciliation. And the Jewish leaders had totally missed this point. They'd taken that God had set them apart to use them for reconciliation, and they used it to, to puff themselves up. And so when I look at this story, we need to realize how good God is and how loving he is, that he's forgiven you of your sin through faith, grace alone. And then once we've received it, our mission then is to share this ministry of reconciliation, that we no longer view people according to the flesh. We view them through our spiritual eyes, meaning that every single person we encounter, every person who cuts you off and uses some international sign language, Anybody who irritates you, all of your family, we no longer see them as people who irritate us. We see them as somebody who Christ died for. And Jesus loves them. And he wants us to share the good news with them. And Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. I thank you for this simple story. Lord, it's awesome to think that you're actively pursuing each one of us. That every person that comes to mind that we know and love, you know them more, you love them more. And that you're working on reaching them. Father, I thank you that you're pouring out and investing in each one of us. Father, I pray for those, Lord, that maybe have not made their return to you in this room. Father, I pray that your kindness and your love would overwhelm them. Father, that you would help them to see what the gospel means. We thank you that Jesus died for us. Father, increase our faith. Lord, help us to believe upon you. Father, I pray for those that maybe have believed but are struggling with past sins. Lord, I pray that you would help them to fully receive the forgiveness and to understand the grace that you've poured out upon them. Father, I pray that you would help us just to guard ourselves from legalism and and seeing you as this two-dimensional God You have not ordained us, called us to be your cops, to give tickets to those that are um, running away from you. Father, help us to, to see people with your love, Lord, that you would give us the words to say that we would embody your love to them. We love you, Lord. We praise you. And we ask this in Christ's good name. Amen.